Hello, and welcome to the Urology COVID Lecture Series podcast, brought to you by the UCSF Department of Urology. In today's episode, we have Dr. James Hoteling from the University of Utah talking about male fertility and somatic health. All right, we'll go ahead and get started. Um, my name is uh, Jim Hoteling. I'm a urologist who does um, men's health and male infertility at the University of Utah. And we're going to talk about um, sort of where uh, the future might be going uh, for male infertility. We're going to cover its relationship to somatic health, talk a little bit about the, the sperm Olympics, which is essentially a uh, shorthand for, for microfluidics, and, uh, and then talk a little bit about in vitro spermatogenesis and how it could impact the field uh, going forward. So um, thank you for inviting me to give this talk, um, and hopefully we can keep uh, everyone uh, engaged and, and also learn a little bit about the field. Um, so in terms of my disclosures, um, here they are, Boston Scientific and Endopharmaceuticals are educational grants. And then I do own uh, and have founded three startup companies, Nanonc, Andro360, and StreamDX. Uh, some of this work, the microfluidic stuff, is directly related to uh, Nanonc, which is the company that has uh, developed this technology through uh, funding from NIH grants. Um, in terms of the learning objectives, we want to talk about how male infertility impacts somatic health, um, talk about uh, whether microfluidics has a role in male infertility, and then talk about how somatogonial stem cell culture may actually have an impact on the field. Um, so the first thing we'll talk about is something called SHARE, or Subfertility Health Assisted Reproduction in the Environment. This is a big cohort from the University of Utah that we've used to look at uh, male infertility and its relationship to somatic health. So uh, Utah is a very unique state uh, in a number of ways. Um, it's a beautiful state um, and has a lot of diverse uh, geography, but um, it has a population of 3 million, um, which is the 31st biggest by population, but the 13th largest by area. So it's a very, um, uh, a lot of it's very rural uh, and not very densely populated with the exception of maybe Salt Lake and St. George. Um, it's also the only state where the majority of the state belongs to one religion, um, Latter-day Saints or, or Mormon. Um, and that's relevant for this database because uh, for two reasons. One, um, the Mormons are uh, to some degree a founder population. They came to Utah in approximately 1860. Um, and obviously there's been a lot of in-migration and out-migration, but for religious reasons, they keep extensive pedigree data. So a lot of the people in Utah can trace um, their genealogy back to uh, the 1860s or sometimes even further. Um, and a lot of really important genes such as the BRCA gene or the APC gene were actually discovered uh, from this cohort. So, um, this is a picture of the Hubble telescope and the, the database we use to do this is something called the Utah Population Database. And a lot of people have described this as akin to the Hubble telescope for um, population health. And we basically train this thing to look at uh, sperm by linking it to some large databases we have in Utah. Um, the Utah Population Database contains about 20 million records. Um, essentially everybody um, who lives in Utah is in the database. If you have a Utah driver's license, you're, you're in the database, um, whether you want to be or not. Uh, having this database in other states might be quite controversial, but it's, it's been in place in Utah since the 80s. 
it contains about 85% of all medical records. And then all birth certificate, death certificate data has genealogy data on about 50% of the state. And then a lot of, um, you know, field deaths, uh, census data and driver's license data, data, which gives you a height, weight, uh, and address, um, for everyone. So, um, a lot of people uh, have shown, you know, Mike Eisenberg's done a lot of this work that uh, infertile men are more likely to have a number of health issues. And we asked the question of if, if there is either a genetic or environmental underpinning of, of that connection, does that extend to families, um, particularly when it comes to genetics? So we basically said, okay, you have this infertile person, what happens to their you know, offspring going forward and, and other things historically in their family that, that have relationships? with any of this. Um, so like I said, we've, we've looked at, you know, the proban, but what if male infertility in the sperm count was a biomarker of familial health? Uh, if that was the case, um, we could really derive a lot of uh, interesting insights from that. It may have broad population relevance, and also there may be some biologic underpinnings of that that may give us insight into to male infertility uh, and even um, cellular division and senescence on kind of a, a basic science level. So uh, when we look at individual versus familial health, we know that, that infertile individuals have higher risks of diabetes, heart disease, alcohol and drug abuse. Um, they tend to die younger. They have higher rates of testis and prostate cancer and higher rates of psychiatric disease. Um, and on, uh, you know, I've done some of this work. Mike Eisenberg has also done a decent amount of this work. Uh, we also know that from a familial standpoint, these individuals that their families, this is from our work in the SHARE database with the Utah Population Database, have higher rates of testis cancer, thyroid cancer, um, their relatives have higher rates of pediatric cancer, acute lymphoblastic leukemia particularly, and higher rates of pediatric, pediatric mortality and deaths from major congenital anomalies, um, which really begs the question of, you know, why is this? What is really driving this? Um, so when we, we look at, you know, what are the conclusions and how does this relate to specific sperm parameters, we see that um, first-degree relatives of azospermic men have higher rates of thyroid cancer and death from major congenital anomalies. Men with oligozospermia or lower sperm counts have higher rates of pediatric uh, acute lymphoblastic leukemia. And all infertile men, their family members, have higher rates of testis cancer. So what's the mechanism? Could be genetic, could be environmental, but also could be epigenetic. And we'll talk a little bit about that in a second here. Um, so what is, you know, what is sort of epigenetics? Um, Really, it can be summed up by this picture. This is a picture of Darwin and Lamarck. Most people have heard of Darwin. Not everyone has heard of Lamarck. And basically, um, sort of this can be summed up by an analogy to a giraffe. Darwin believed that giraffes have tall necks because their ancestors, um, the ones with taller necks, had a selective advantage and had more kids because they lived longer because they could reach the leaves. Lamarck believed that giraffes have taller necks because they stretched to reach the leaves and that changed the genes that were then passed on to their offspring. Lamarck was largely discredited in his lifetime, but it turns out actually he was partially right. Um, so this slide sort of il uh, illustrates this uh, concept of paternal preconception health and transgenerational epigenetic inheritance. Here you have um, these mice that were taught to fear an odor, either benzene or acetophenone. Um, and what you found is when you expose them to benzene, you shock them, and then you bred them out for several generations with really no exposure to their parents. And what you see is that the F1 and F2 generations have an increased startle response when you expose them to benzene. 
which essentially means that there was something passed through the germline that actually uh, their parents' life experience changed their genes. So here you see not only that, but the gene for an olfactory receptor activated by benzene was demethylated in the germline. Hence you see you know, behavioral and really truly biologic evidence of this going on. Um, you know, what is, how is this mediated? What is the sperm epi epigenome? Essentially the best way to think about this is if genes are like, you know, the words in a book um, and pages in a book, the um, epigenome is like how you select for what you're actually reading within that book. And there, um, the sperm is wound up really, or the DNA is wound up really tightly in the sperm. And you have these, you know, histone methylations, which can change what, um, genes are, are red and not red based on what's exposed. So when you think about this, you have to look at DNA methylation, you have to look at nuclear protein composition, um, you know, RNA is another big one. And when you think about RNA, um, there's this whole concept of microRNAs, and the idea is that um, as the sperm pass through the epididymis, that microRNAs could actually be coming in and out of the sperm and actually be what mediates some of this uh, transmission of how life course experience gets passed on to offspring, that this is really happening through microRNA. Um, so interesting work here and, and more to come. One example of this, and we wrote a review of this several years ago, is that obesity uh, is actually heritable. And that's beyond just you know, if your dad ate a lot of potato chips that you're more likely to eat potato chips, that's actually that someone who's obese, it actually changes the genes for their offspring. And this is a number of different examples from this from both animal studies and human studies. And basically mice that are fed a high fat diet, it changes the genes, the glucoregulatory genes in their offspring. Um, so this is all happening through the epigenome and this affects not only offspring, but also the grand offspring. So some really interesting work here on epigenetics. Um, shifting gears a little bit, uh, we also use the UPDB to look at uh, leverage the pedigree data. And these are an example of a, a fat pedigree and a skinny pedigree. And that the fat pedigree, which is not totally atypical of our pedigrees, these people have a lot of kids, especially historically. Um, and the skinny pedigree is, is a, a smaller pedigree. And when you look at the population in Utah, especially if you go back to the 1860s, they generally speaking were LDS and most of them desired very large families. Um, so what we did is we asked the question is, is there a relationship between subfertility in one generation and historic intergenerational family size? So in other words, if you have a low sperm count, is your family historically likely to have less kids? And um, we identified this cohort of families with small intergenerational size. And we looked at data before 1935, which is when birth control was, was introduced. Um, and what we found was that men with a low total modal count have smaller intergenerational family size, which is super interesting and, and actually somewhat surprising. So this was our cohort. We had 26,000 men with a SEM analysis. We had 2,800 when we got to families where we had complete pedigree, and then they had to have generations before 1935, which whittled this down somewhat further. Um, and then we also had to have made the requirement that they had a measure of total modal count in a generation before 1935. We ended up with about 2,200 um, um, men to look at it, uh, with complete pedigree data. And what we found when we looked at total modal count as a continuous variable is that for every additional child in their historical pedigree back in nine generations, we saw an increase in the total modal count of 1.88 million uh, that was significant. Um, and obviously you could say some of this could be confounded due to selection 
you know, some families wealthier, healthier, other things. But in reality, it's unlikely to have, you know, confounding going back 100 years uh, that persists um, throughout a family. So we see that lower total mode account equals smaller intergenerational size. Another way to put this is men in the top quartile of intergenerational family size had a total mode account that was 48 million higher than men in the bottom quartile. So really a dramatic, uh, dramatic difference there. So um, what's the mechanism of this? So Aaron Quinlan, who's a computational biologist at the University of Utah, um, looked at big three generation um, pedigrees where they had whole genome sequencing um, and found that, and this is in a, another cohort from the Utah Population Database, but not related, not directly tied to the work uh, that I'm doing. So um, these large families show postzygotic mosaicism and variability uh, in germline mutation. So essentially what they did is they took 33 large multi-generational families with an average of eight kids per generation. So big, big families. They found that the de novo mutation rate, about 75% of which is driven by the male, varies from 0.2 to 3.24 across different families. And what they found was that families with a higher de novo mutation rate, which there was a subset of families that had a threefold higher de novo mutation rate, had a lot higher rates of cancer and they died on average uh, eight years earlier. So, you know, it sort of begs the question, is it possible that these skinny pedigrees have a higher de novo mutation rate? And we certainly don't have proof of that at this point, but it is a plausible, um, plausible reason for what we're seeing in the epidemiologic and demographic data. And we, we are investigating this and have applied for some grants uh, to get funded. Uh, the whole genome sequencing, as you can imagine, is, is quite expensive. So uh, shifting gears a little bit, let's talk about microfluidics um, and how it can help us find the optimal sperm. So here, uh, first of all, our goal is, is not to replicate the work of, of this company, which, which was uh, interesting to say the least. Um, you know, the seek analysis is not a perfect test. These are four editorials that I've written, basically talking about um, what the problems are with the seam analysis. And then, you know, there's also a lot of data indicating that total mobile sperm count is a much better indicator than uh, a lot of these other uh, variables um, in a seam analysis um, that we actually do have WHO criteria for what is normal versus abnormal, such as concentration count, uh, morphology, motility. So one of the fundamental problems we have with the seam analysis is that it looks at a population of sperm when what we're really interested in often uh, in the fertility world is the one sperm, especially when it comes to IVF or ICSI. Um, so if you look at all of the available procedures other than ICSI, um, you use them to evaluate a, a population of sperm. So for ICSI, for example, we're interested in one sperm. And the, the problem is um, we don't have the way to interrogate a single sperm without killing it. And microfluidics really holds the potential to selectively sort non-invasive image and select one sperm. Um, so uh, when we look at sperm identification from testicular tissue, it's a really labor-intensive process for embryologists. Um, Microtessi sperm identification can take 12 to 15 person hours, and the success of microtessi is really dependent on the lab. Um, what if we could automate this process? That's, that's kind of how I initially got uh, interested in this. So the goal is to do sperm sorting on a chip. So essentially you put um, either the sperm, the semen or the testicular tissue sample into a chip and then run it through this microfluidics chip and then it sorts for um, the various, um, removes the debris and, and finds kind of the optimal sperm. 
So a little bit of background on microfluidics. What is microfluidics? It's manipulation of cells uh, through channels with dimensions on the order of microns. So really, really tiny, uh, tiny channels. It allows for really precise control of a cell's environment and uh, manipulation. And then also it's really excellent for processing samples with low cell concentration and really low sample volumes. Another important point of microfluidics is that these uh, devices can be run iteratively. In other words, they can be run through the device and then you know the, this, the part that you want can be put back through the device to get even more purified. And we'll go over that in a second here. Um, so how does this really work? Um, there's a number of ways that can be done. A lot of the commercially available chips, such as the Zymot chip, um, rely on sperm motility to select the optimal sperm. Um, we're really leveraging these microfluidic devices um, and with the idea of not relying on sperm motility because we're, we're focusing on testicular sperm. So you have lift flow and, and dean flow as these uh, sperm flow through a channel. And the lift force really pushes the particles out. The dean force pushes the particles in. And you get this dynamic balance between these two and the cells sort um, by size and shape. Um, this is an example that we've done. Um, this is a review article. We published a couple of papers on this looking at um, taking samples uh, with a lot of white blood cells and sperm runs through this spiral channel. And then due to the lift force and dean force, they sort out in different directions. And there's two different outlets, the sperm going one way and the white blood cells going another way. And, and you can see um, kind of at the end of this channel here, you can run the, 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 good, the good effluent, the sperm back through the channel and get even more purification. Um, so one thing to remember is the spermatogenesis is really high throughput. Um, when we look at this, you have these spermatogonial stem cells making, you know, an aggregate, most guys are making a thousand sperm a second. And then you have these spermatogonial, you might have one spermatogonial stem cell that's kind of making the optimal sperm. And the question is, you know, maybe it moves faster. You know, obviously a joke, I have ludicrous speed on here, but we don't really have a great way of identifying this sperm that might make um, the best uh, baby. Um, certainly, uh, we, it's hard to identify that in the lab. So when we have, um, you know, the solution that we came up with is these spiral channel devices and they're, you know, etched in PDMS and where there's a number of ways to make these are very expensive, inexpensive, like less than a dollar to make. Um, these are sort of the features of the channels that we're actually using. Um, you know, they're quite small and all of these variables can be manipulated to optimize sperm sorting. And the, the key here is kind of getting these variables correct so you can sort the sperm in an optimal uh, fashion and get the desired outcome. Um, so when we look at applications for microtessie samples, um, the goal is to develop something where we could put uh, the minced biopsy in um, and then um, actually have um, uh, put the media in and then have the sperm go one direction, the debris go another direction, and then run this through an enrichment module to further isolate the sperm. And these devices work with a syringe pump actually actively pushing and sometimes actively pulling to the sample through the device. So uh, in doing this, the sperm search was accelerated about tenfold, and this really could improve the sperm search uh, success rate. Um, the sperm was... Um, this looked at a project to find sperm through microfluidics in samples from men with non-obstructive azospermia or spermatogenic failure. Um, we took uh, these samples and ran them through um, the device. These were microtessie samples. 
And this was just from a research standpoint. We weren't using this clinically. Um, these samples were a lot cleaner. They had a higher concentration of sperm found per unit time, two to 20 fold higher on average, about eight fold higher. And it took about 90% less time to process. This is kind of the raw data here uh, with our samples. And this is the paper that we recently published in Urology. Um, and when we look at sort of our device versus a standard you know, centrifuge, you can see that um, our device puts 6.2 Gs of force on the sperm, whereas the centrifuge puts uh, 500 Gs. We also are exposing it to that force for a lot less time. And then you can see, if you look at the bottom right, the ratio between the test and the control results, you see that it's about eight, almost nine fold higher meaning we're finding a lot more sperm. And in a few instances, we actually found sperm with the device where we didn't find it uh, looking uh, manually, which obviously could be a game changer for patients. So now we'll switch to sort of the final uh, component of the talk and talk about, you know, spermatogonial stem cell culture uh, and how that could really play a role in shaping the field in the future. I suspect we'll um, finish the talk a little bit early and then have a uh, decent amount of time for, for questions uh, after we get through this, because this is the, uh, the final component here. So, um, you know, really, you know, what's the, you know, one thing we can look at is, is obesity. I mentioned obesity at the beginning, and um, it can obviously have an impact on offspring health. And, you know, so we started looking at this to try to understand, you know, how we might be able to culture spermatogonial stem cells. One thing you have to understand is that while um, for a long time in rodents, we've been able to culture spermatogonial stem cells uh, in the lab uh, and actually grow sperm in a dish, essentially, even from IPS cells, we cannot really, um, we cannot really do this um, in humans. Uh, and that's probably due to the fact that spermatogenesis in humans is fundamentally different than in mice. So we started looking at this in about 2013 or 2014. Um, and when we first did it, the work required three years and eight uh, threshold human testicles. These were from um, patients who um, were having orchiectomies for kind of the end of the road for testicular pain. Um, obviously, you know, this is a joke, but you know, you could volunteer for this if you wanted to. We now have a pipeline of cadaveric organ donor tissue and we're getting about 40 to 50 specimens annually from, you know, neonates all the way to age 75. And that's really been a game changer because we actually get, you know, the whole uh, pair of testicles from all these patients. We get them fresh. Um, we obviously have approval to do this with the, the donor program. Um, and when we look at this, what we find is that, you know, we've sort of classified these cells into four different states. And the SSCA4 positive cells are kind of the, the spermatogonial stem cells that replenish other spermatogonial stem cells, while the KIP positive cells are the ones that actually make sperm. And we found that there's some unique uh, chromatin features that drive this transition. And it's important, you might ask, why is this important? Well, it's important to understand this process because one of the big issues when you try to culture spermatogonial stem cells is they all kind of become fibroblasts uh, and the tubules become really atrophic and they don't really last very long. And that's, that's the big problem. Um, so you've got to look at what are the factors that drive pluripotency um, and sort of repress uh, totipotency uh, to understand how this works. And this is the basic protocol that we, you know, went through. We sequenced, sorted the cells and then sequenced the cells. 
And then you can see here that if you look at how these cells journey through the uh, process uh, from the stem cells to actually becoming sperm, the self-renewing spermatogonial stem cells are uh, SSCA4 positive, and then the differentiating spermatogonial stem cells are uh, KIT positive. So those are kind of the differences that you see there. So uh, what we found, which was really interesting, was that metabolic regulators uh, really govern the spermatogonial stem cell differentiation and the renewal. And um, what's super interesting is that if you look at this cluster C, you know, as these cells become, you know, to the point where they're producing sperm uh, and not just renewing themselves, what gets ramped up is a lot of the metabolic factors. Uh, and you can see that here. Um, and then the cell uh, cycle replication repair. And that really makes a lot of sense because these sperm, spermatogonial stem cells go from just, you know, reproducing themselves at a very low level to really ramping up and making a huge number of sperm. So if these metabolic transitions govern the spermatogonial stem cells, you could ask the question is, does this, the altered metabolism get recorded uh, in the stem cells? And if it did, would there be evolutionary advantages to this? And the answer is absolutely yes. If you're going through a time of, of famine, obviously it makes sense to have children that probably have a lower uh, metabolic rate. Um, could these SSCs serve as a tape recorder of nutritional exposure that's passed on to offspring? And if they do, what's the mechanism? Is it microRNAs? Is it methylation? Is it protamination? Um, so next we uh, published another paper in Cell Research in 2018. Um, and this work was all done by Jing Tao Guo, who is, um, was a um, graduate student with Dr. Cairns, um, who's the senior author on this. Um, and then, uh, and Jing Tao is now joining the faculty at University of Utah, so we'll get to continue this work. Um, when you look at this, um, what you see here is we can look at the expressions, expression of all these different genes, and you can look at something called pseudotime, and that kind of clusters the cells based on what they look like. What we're doing here is single cell RNA sequencing, so we're profiling, you know, 10,000 cells. Here it was, you know, 8,400, and we're looking at all of the gene expression uh, from an RNA standpoint in each of these cells, and then we can see um, kind of how the cells look different. And what we can see here is you're essentially watching spermatogenesis. So the state one here are the SSC spermatogonial stem cells, you know, and state eight are the, the sperm. So you can actually watch the transition here. And then when you look at these other cells, the 9, 10, 11, 12, 13 are um, some macrophages, endothelial cells, myoid cells, Sertoli cells, and Leydig cells. And it turns out that the Leydig cells uh, and the Sertoli cells and even the myoid cells are really important to maintaining the spermatogonial stem cells. Uh, and we can derive a lot of insight from this in terms of how to culture them. So, uh, you know, when you look at this again, you know, this is just another representation of kind of the different expression here and, and how we derive this. And this is, you know, biologic replicates, and these are all done with technical replicates as well to sort of look at the different cell types and see how things are changing over time. Um, so this is the single cell sequencing and essentially what you're watching is kind of the birth of sperm uh, through this from SSCs to these, these differentiating ones. And you can see that these cells all uh, cluster uh, in different places based on their gene expression. So these are foundational data sets enabled by a cadaveric tissue pipeline like we talked about. Um, you look here and you can see further uh, changes in the gene expression dynamics uh, during spermatogenesis and you can see how these things all cluster together uh, and what the primary uh, expression is 
uh, in these different uh, cell types. And what's really interesting is there's some key differences with the mouse, which will probably be the, the crux of understanding how to culture these cells. So when you recluster all these cells, the type one and two, which are the SSCs and the differentiating spermatogonia, and to tie this back to the first paper that sort of, you know, state one and state four, what we actually found is there's another type of cells that cluster called state zero, which are kind of the quiescent germ cells. In other words, they would be the germ cells that are there kind of, um, you know, before you go through puberty and, and spermatogenesis gets turned on. Um, when we look at these, what's really interesting is there's sort of a dynamic interplay uh, with these cells kind of going uh, back and forth and going from state zero to state one. And they can actually flip back and forth. So what we're trying to do for spermatogonial stem cells is figure out how to maintain the state zero and state one cells uh, in culture and then drive them to the state four where they can actually make sperm. And, and doing so requires a, a unique kind of combination of different growth factors and signaling factors. So um, the goal is to kind of leverage this bi-directionality um, between uh, different uh, cell types. So the next thing we did is we looked at human testis development during puberty. And this is again from this cadaveric organ donor pipeline. We have, you know, uh, juveniles age 7, 11, 13, and 14, and then a uh, 25-year-old, and then also a one-year-old. And we looked at their tissue, and now we're essentially plotting the same type of plots, but we're looking at how these differ um, between ages. And what you can see here is that, um, you know, when you look at um, cluster one here, which the, are the, you know, spermatogonia and the spermatocytes, you know, you're not really seeing many of those until you get to the, sorry about that, until you get to, you know, some of the older patients, and you do see a lot of these you know, quiescent cells in the, in the younger patients. And the goal is to kind of understand how to do this to eventually take like, for example, prepubertal patients who are having testicular tissue banked for uncle fertility reasons, freeze the tissue, and then in the future, culture it and grow sperm in a dish. Uh, the other thing that you see here is that there's a big change in how the Leydig cells change between the, the younger patients and the older patients. Same thing for Sertoli cells and same thing for the myoid cells. And one of the key insights we've taken away from this is that um, it's actually these cells that sort of are critical to maintaining the germ cell niche and facilitating spermatogenesis. Um, uh, some other interesting things we've seen is we do a fair amount of transgender surgery at the University of Utah that's done with myself and Jeremy Myers. And then we actually see that, um, you know, you can, uh, if you look at patients who've had their testosterone suppressed for you know, 5, 10, 20 years in the transgender population, they look, the tissue looks a lot like you know, prepubertal uh, testis tissue. And you can see that you, know, you can rescue, if you're trying to culture these Sertoli cells, you can rescue them with um, testosterone supplementation. So if you have the base medium here, you look at culture at one week, two weeks, and three weeks, and you see a lot of sclerosis in the cells and things sort of dying. Uh, and not maintaining the architecture, whereas if you culture them again and add testosterone, it actually looks much more like a healthy tubule, which is what you start at. So uh, this uh, resulted in, you know, the one paper we talked about here, uh, this was the adult human testis transcriptional atlas, and then this is the sort of dynamic transcriptional cell atlas of testis development through puberty that we just discussed. So in, in some sort of three papers, and then there's another uh, paper under review, and, and hopefully we'll be able to get some more uh, grant funding to continue this work.
Um, so what does this mean for the field? Um, it means a couple things. Um, first of all, it really holds the promise of identifying correcting spermatogenic defects and the impact of exposures in vitro. If you can culture spermatogonial stem cells, you can you know, understand what's wrong with them. And for example, an azospermic man, uh, and you can actually potentially uh, manipulate that uh, through something such as CRISPR. Um, and it, it's much more comfortable for, for sort of most people to manipulate spermatogonial stem cells rather than an embryo, which obviously has been incredibly controversial. Um, and then, you know, the race is kind of on to see who will get there first. Uh, this is a long-term project of, of our group at the University of Utah and, and other groups as well. Um, Another, just to bring it back to practical uh, relevance, this is a, a Japanese group that's done ROSI around spermatid injection. So essentially in patients who have a microtessie, you know, decent amount of the time you don't find sperm, but sometimes you do find spermatids and they actually took these spermatids, which are basically immature sperm that have gone through, you know, meiosis. So they're haploid, but they haven't fully developed into, into sperm and they injected them. And amazingly, they, it actually works, not a lot of the time, but sometimes. Um, they have 90 kids born due to this, and they're, they're pretty healthy overall. Um, they found these spermatids in about 10% of men uh, after a failed microtessy, and then when you use them, they had about a 10% you know, live birth rate from these. So very, very low birth rate on the, on the order of you know, 1%, but the kids appear to be pretty normal. And one thought you know, would be it's really hard to recognize these spermatids, and, and could these be early spermatids, which have not gone through meiosis, and not late spermatids, which is what you want. And obviously, the single cell RNA sequencing can be a great tool to understand this and to kind of figure out how to um, you know, improve this process. We could also look at extended embryo culture. Um, there's a trial of this at uh, uh, EDRMA at uh, RMA New Jersey, which is a group uh, I also work with. Um, so I will, at this point, um, you know, sort of take any uh, questions, and uh, then we can wrap up. And if we don't have any questions, we can we can wrap up uh, a little bit early. Okay, thank you, Dr. Hotelling. Interesting talk. Um, I have one question for you, actually. So, um, circling back to microfluidics, are there any potential sperm characteristics that we can some use microfluidics to select for those sperms? And then is there or are there any effects, known or potentially unknown uh, effects on the sperm when the sperm goes through that microchannels uh, in the microfluidics process? Yeah, that's a really great question. Um, we looked at that with ours and we looked at, you know, viability, you know, motility and, um, you know, DNA fragmentation and we didn't find significant changes. Um, other groups, you know, such as the, like the Zymot chip uses basically a microfluidic swim up and, and it has shown that they can successfully select sperm that have lower rates of DNA fragmentation. You know, the, the jury's kind of still out until you have large numbers of kids born. Um, after using these chips, you won't totally know the answer to that. It seems to be generally safe and I would sort of submit that it's likely safer than um, a lot of the density gradients that we do. Interesting, thank you. So you can use the Q&A box to submit your questions, um, and then if we don't get to the answers, uh, you can find the answers on the website. Uh, meanwhile, please uh, fill out the lecture evaluations. You can scan the QR code here or just go to the website. A recorded version of this talk and the, and the slides would be available online uh, on the website.
Um, so I don't see any other questions and I think we can wrap this up. All right. Well, uh, thank you very much for giving me the opportunity to talk today. And uh, yeah, if you have other questions, let us know. Thanks. Thank you for listening. We'll talk to you soon. Learn more by visiting our website, urologycovid.ucsf.edu.